Would you open God's precious holy word to Numbers chapter 13? The people have already been murmuring and complaining after the beautiful um, organization into their administration, readying, preparing the people for the march to victory, the march to Canaan, the land of promise. More than 400 years earlier, God had promised a land to Abraham and his descendants. He set him up on a place and he said, look as far as you want to in any direction. This land is your land and to your descendants I'll give it. The land of promise. As a matter of fact, the Abrahamic covenant cannot be set. The covenant that God establishes with Israel cannot be separated from the covenant of the land. The land is as much the promise as anything else. So this was something that would be the pinnacle of the existence of Israel to this point. To go back, when God made the promise, Abraham was old and he had a tiny family. He didn't have anything like what was about to come out of this part of the world, out of Egypt. Now, however, they are a nation. They are, they have an army in the first book, first of the book of Numbers. Um, God gave the instructions to Moses. Moses instructed the people and everything that could possibly be thought of had been taken care of was organized. You can, you know, you can look real good as an organized group of people. But you have to have it in your heart. Doesn't matter how good you look, how strong the army may appear to be, if it isn't in the hearts of the people, then it'll never be accomplished. It, it involves faith. It involves surrender. So then we come to this part it's a watershed experience. This is, this is Numbers 13. Of course, Numbers 14 goes right along. We won't get that far tonight. But it is the, it is the beginning of the national collapse of faith, faithlessness. So we get to Numbers 13, the spies are sent out to Canaan. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, send out for yourself. Now, to me that for yourself is an important part of the statement because in Deuteronomy oh, what, 19 or so, Deuteronomy 19, we find out that actually it was the people who came to Moses saying something like this, we're not going to go any farther until you tell us what kind of place we're going into. 
So it really started with the people. It didn't, it didn't start out as a command from Yahweh. You have to put this along with what is said in Deuteronomy. And the people are the ones who started this whole thing. So Yahweh says, okay, send out for yourself men who will scout the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the children of Israel, the sons of Israel. And you shall send one man for each of his father's tribe. Each one shall be a chieftain in their midst. So Moses sent them from the desert of Paran by the word of the Lord, by the word of Yahweh. And all of them were men of distinction. They were the heads of the sons of Israel. The desert of Paran, you can look at your Bible maps, you can see they were on the map, they were this far away from Canaan. They were not far at all. They were something like 20 miles maybe or so. Just a days, two days, three days at the most. And they would be in the land of Canaan. The land of promise. The patriarchs, their forebears, had traveled that land. Had, it, had received the call of God in that land. There, they were the earliest worshipers of Yahweh on this side of the flood. They had their own problems, but they had faith. And God chose them. And God used them in their day. So they, you know, this should have been a time, this should have been a time of excitement. They, these, this generation of Israel had never seen that land. The land from whence Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had come, where the 12 tribes were birthed, where the very earliest part of the nation uh, came forth in the land of promise where so many significant things had happened and the promises of God and those promises remained, they, they remained unbroken all the way for those hundreds of years. Well, you would think the excitement would be at a peak in the hearts of the people. But according to Deuteronomy, they didn't want to go until they heard more about where they were going. So that brings us here to what Moses is saying, what Yahweh says to Moses. Okay. Then it becomes a command from Yahweh to Moses. So from the, from the complaining, uh, faithless request of the people in Deuteronomy, it becomes then... A command of Yahweh, okay? Why should God be afraid of our discovery of anything where he's sending us? You know, where God guides, God provides. My daddy used to tell me, when God makes a bill, he'll pay it. Don't ever doubt that. If, if God sends you, guides you, he, he provides. If he sends you, he will give you the strength to take care of it. Nothing else matters. What else, you know, Paul asks the rhetorical question in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? They're going to, in a minute, we'll see they enumerate, they enumerate all of these nations that are there. Nations that are mean, 
and they don't like Israel just waiting there, you know. What, why should that matter? It shouldn't matter uh, at all. So why should God withdraw from us what the challenge really is? Why should he hide what the people, where the people are going to go? Why should he hide the facts of the matter and the truth of how the land is? Remember, they've been complaining about hunger and all this kind of stuff. And they've been whining for the bare necessities that they had in Egypt. And God knows that when they get one glimpse of Canaan, this, this should completely wipe away any desire for the meager food that could come from Egypt. Because they're going to go to a land that drips with prosperity and abundance, food, fruit, water, rivers, honeybees and, and crops. It's, it's just filled. God has already provided the land. He's already prepared the land for them. They don't have to do anything because it's already there producing. They just have to walk in in faith. And take the land. So why should God be afraid for us to understand the challenge to which he calls us? It's much like what Jesus said the night before he was crucified to his disciples when he told them what they were going into. He, he even told them that they were going to be killed. You're going to face terrible adversity. But you're going to go in faith, and even in the adversities, you're going to face great victory. Because Christ was sending them. They were going in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those disciples would lay a foundation that would work itself out and forward in time, even into what is happening right here tonight. So why... Why should any information be withheld? It's not. It's not withheld from us at all. And so God certainly isn't concerned that the people via this committee could have a glimpse of the wonders of the land of promise. There's nothing in Egypt that could compare with what they will see in this beautiful land of Canaan. So Yahweh says, let them go. So he sends them out from Paran by the word of Yahweh. They were men of distinction. Heads of the, uh, they were the heads of the sons of Israel. So these guys are the most distinguished people among the 12 tribes, each man most distinguished in his tribe. So they're the top of the group among their people. They are representative of the integrity and faith and courage and whatever of their particular tribe. There are 12 of them, 12 tribes, one for each, one man for each tribe. So these distinguished and trustworthy men 
are gathered together. Here are their names. The tribe of Reuben, Shamuel, the son of Zakur. For the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. For the tribe of Issachar, Yigal, the son of Joseph. For the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshe, the son of Nun. Moses will change his name from Hoshe to Joshua. So that's Joshua. For the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. For the tribe of Zebulun, Gadil, the son of Sodi. For the tribe of Joseph. For the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. For the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gimali. For the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Mikael. For the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vofshi, Vopshi, Vofshi. For the tribe of Gad, Gil, the son of Machi. These are the names of the men Moses sent to scout the land, and Moses called Hoshe, the son of Nun, Joshua. So that same name as Jesus, Yahweh saves, Yahweh's salvation, probably because he chose this particular man who was his lieutenant, his right-hand man. He chose him, obviously, to be the captain of the group. So his name is changed here uh, to speak of the salvation that is found in Yahweh. Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. So they're selected, and then they're given these instructions. Moses sent them to scout the land of Canaan, and he said to them, Go up this way in the south and climb up the mountain, and you shall see what kind of land it is and the people who inhabit it. Are they strong or are they weak? Are they few or are they many? And what of the land they inhabit? Is it good or bad land? What are the cities in which they reside? Are they in camps or in fortresses? What is the soil like? Is it fat or lean? Are there any trees in it or not? You shall be courageous and take from the fruit of the land. It was the season when the first grapes began, began to ripen. Now Moses was a, as much of a military commander as anything else. So he, he's, he's wanting some information. This is a sort of a recon. He, he, he wants some information about the lay of the land, what he's going to face. This will help him in, uh, in, in uh, establishing how he's going to march in. Are they in villages? Is it, are they in fortresses? This will help him on what, how to prepare his weaponry and, and, uh, and uh, the march forward and so forth. These are very important things that he needs to know. But for the sake of the people, I think Moses already knew, but for the sake of the people, he wants them to come back and tell them what kind of land this is, what kind of productivity this is, what kind of soil it is. I believe, of course, Moses, I believe, already knows that it's the most productive land in the world. In that day, this is the land of promise. This is the land that God would give to his people. This whole thing is a story of faith and obedience that collapses into a pitiful account of fear. 
which then collapses in the next chapter, we'll see, into disobedience that destroys an entire generation of people. So the spies go out and they explore Canaan. They went up, explored the land from the desert of Zin unto Rehov at the entrance of Hamat. They went up in the south and he came to Hebron. And there wasn't, it wasn't Hebron at that time. It wasn't named that, but for the sake of, uh, for the sake of identification, to Hebron. And there were Achaman, Shishai, and Telmai, the descendants of the giant. Now, Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan of Egypt. Now, we're going to learn, we actually already learned because we've already gone through Joshua some time back, Caleb was 80 years old. He was 40 when they started their trek, walking in a circle for 40 years. Caleb and Joshua survive in that generation, the only ones. They go in and then here's this place where the Anachim live, the, the giants. It's a high place. It's a mountain. It's the, it's the most glorious place around there. It has these grapes of Eskel. It, it has uh, all that could be desired in a land. There is no more plush land in the world than this land. We, 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 Yahweh makes the promise to Caleb, I'll give you the first choice. When the people go into Canaan, you get first choice. Now, this place that he would rename Hebron, it... Uh, it was, it was the citadel of the Anachim, the giants. And they, they have the high ground. They have the high land. It's fortified city. But it's the best place there is. And Caleb is the one who says, I want that land. I want that mountain. I want Eskel. That's what I want. 80 years old. And he says, I'm as good of a man today as I ever was. And I'm going to just go right up there and take it. And he did. And he renamed it Hebron, which means the place of fellowship. Well, here they go ahead and use the name Hebron, Moses does, in writing the account. Noting that up on Hebron, what would become Hebron, were the descendants of the giant. And Hebron obviously the area that became known as Hebron was, uh, was a fortified city that had been, been there quite some time. They came to the Valley of Eshcol. They cut a branch of a cluster of grapes. They carried it on a pole between two people. And they also took some pomegranates and figs. They called that place the Valley of Eshcol because of the cluster. Eshcol means cluster. The children of Israel cut from there. They returned from scouting the land at the end of 40 days. The plushest land in the world, the most productive land in the world. It is ready to be inhabited. It is written up. You know, when the people of God, when the servant of God is called to do a work, it doesn't mean that there's not going to be a challenge in the work. 
Those who depend upon themselves will make an assessment relative to their abilities on something. So, if a person wants to accomplish a goal and he sees the goal as something that is well within, well within the possibility of his accomplishing, he'll call it a great and worthy goal. However, if he sees it as something that is impossible for him alone to accomplish, the natural tendency of that person will be to trash the whole event. There's no way anybody can do this. This is an impossibility. If he can't do it in his own strength, he sees it as an impossibility. Now, that's not how God operates in his work. As a matter of fact, we saw that in in, uh, our study this morning in the Gospel of John. It is the Lord who is present. It is the Lord who calls. It is the Lord who directs. It is the Lord who provides. It is the Lord who sustains. It is the Lord who gives the victory. And this is, this is a big part of the whole story of faith in God's people. To have faith in God. And to watch God, watch God do what God will accomplish. So there's a challenge here. Sure, there's a challenge, but God never said there wouldn't be a challenge. However, it's not really a challenge at all. If you, you want to call it the X factor or the God factor, whatever you want to call it. If you bring in absolute faith in God, then there's no challenge at all. There's nothing at all. Caleb, finally, as an 80-year-old man in the book of Joshua, he says, this is nothing to me. A bunch of giants who have the high hill and they live in a fortified city. This is nothing to me. God promised me to give me whatever land I wanted and I want that land, therefore I'm not worried about it. It's already as good as mine already. This is how the people of God are to move forward in life and to move forward in ministry and to move forward in faith. If God is in it, the circumstances really become null and void. There is no challenge if God has brought us into the challenge. And that's what's happening here. The whole crux of the matter in this part of the Bible is that the children of Israel at last, released from bondage and slavery, are given a free ticket right into the land of Canaan. The best land in the world. Sure, there's some obstacles, it would seem, maybe a few challenges, but God's in it, so what difference does it make? Now this is the land, this is the mindset we'll see, that's the mindset of Caleb and Joshua. So it it is as God said, a land with flowing with milk and honey producing so much that it was difficult just in one swoop, one picking to carry all that they saw just in one spot. This, This isn't the whole of the land. So the spies bring their reports. They went, they came to Moses and to Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the desert of Paran to Kadesh. 
They brought them back a report as well as, <clears throat> as well as to the entire congregation and they showed them the fruit of the land. Now remember this. These guys were the best man of each of his tribe. You can't second guess. Oh, we should have sent somebody. No, that was already a settled thing. This guy had, had risen to the pinnacle of respect in his tribe. And so he's the guy that they're going to send. And even the best of them, acknowledging that it's all that God said it was, collapses under his own weight. Because he's looking at something in the eyes of someone who is wondering if he is able to accomplish the task. We're never able to accomplish the task by ourselves. Never. There's, there's no way we can do what, what, what has been done by the Lord's people. You think of the church and the message of the church. I've, I've said it like this before, but to, but to paraphrase, you know, what are we telling the world? We're telling the world that they are worthless by themselves. And they have no hope. Hopeless. Hopeless in this life. Headed for a cold, dark grave through which a person descends into hell and will burn forever and be eternally tormented unless by the grace of God a Savior intervenes. Who is the Savior? The virgin-born Savior. What do you mean, virgin-born I mean that a woman had a baby who had never known a man. She was a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He never sinned. He never went where he shouldn't go, never said that which he shouldn't say. He never listened to that which he shouldn't hear. He was sinless. But he was brought up on charges. What kind of charges? Well, they said he, he conspired against the government. He conspired against his own people and his own people rejected him. And he was counted as a criminal. What happened to him? They killed him. They called him guilty and they nailed him to a cross. They killed him like a, a common criminal. He was executed like a common criminal. But on the third day, he got up. What do you mean he got up? I mean to tell you he was in the grave for three days and he got out of the grave. What did he do then? He taught his disciples and then he ascended into heaven. What do you mean he ascended into heaven? He went up. How did he do that? He floated up. He did it the way he wanted to, however he wanted to do it. He went up into heaven. What's he doing up there? He's getting ready to come again. Calling people to himself. He's coming again, yeah. How's he going to come? He's going to ride a white horse. 
He's going to ride a white horse. He's going to ride a white horse with all the angels and saints in heaven. And they're going to invade the earth and he'll establish the kingdom. Now that's what we preach. Christ in him crucified. Christ resurrected from the dead. Christ who has ascended into heaven and makes intercession for his own. Christ who is preparing a place for us. Christ who is coming again in power and great glory. We can't do that apart from the power of God. To be empowered by God. So here's this beautiful land. They showed them what the, just a little piece of the land, just in one day's picking, what, it, what, it, what they could show them, what they were able to bring back. It is flowing with milk and honey. Indeed. And this is its fruit. However, oh, bad. However, the people who inhabited the land are mighty. The cities are extremely huge and fortified. And there we saw even the offspring of the giant. The Amalekites dwell in the south land. Amalek, he was a mean guy and his people warlike. While the Hittites, the Hittites are transplants from Macedonia, sort of from the west. Very warlike. The Jebusites, these people were crazy. And the Amorites, wealthy and powerful, dwell in the mountainous region. The Canaanites dwell on the coast alongside the Jordan. The people are in an uproar. What? We can't, no, no way. What have you done to us? What is going to happen to us? Caleb silenced the people to hear about Moses. And he said, this is not a problem. We can surely go up and take possession of it for we can indeed overcome it. Now to take possession as to what Yahweh had told him to do much earlier. And to take possession of it means to displace anyone who is there and take it for themselves. This is a command of Yahweh. Where he guides, he provides. We can do this, Caleb says. Funny thing about Caleb is he's a, he's a, a Kenizzite. He's actually of the descendants of Esau and somehow attached himself to Israel, even to Judah, who carried the promise of the Christ. And he has the greatest profession of all of them. We can do this. But the men who went up with him said, we are unable. And that's, you know, that's, that's a true thing. He, they're right. They are not able. They can't do that by themselves. We are unable to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. That's the whole point. You have to move in faith. You have to believe God. You have to trust God. This is what God has told them to do. How could they doubt God and his word? But they did. Basically saying God doesn't know what he's talking about. This is an impossibility. We can't do this. They're right. They were unable. No one is able to do the work to which God has called us. No one is able in and of himself. No, no person. No group. No church. No church. 
Nobody. The, it would seem, it would seem to the outside observer that the church is being thrashed and torn and, and denominations are dying and splitting and, and so forth and so on. But I, it's easy to find out the cause of all of this. You go back to where the church began to invest itself in a social gospel, into a gospel that slowly departed from the, from the, from the gospel itself, from the true gospel, and they began to create things that they knew they could do. Oh, we could do this for people. We can do that for people. And then stranger and stranger decisions are made and stranger and stranger groups are introduced that the church knows we can help, the so-called church, we can help, we can help, and they totally leave the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what we're called to declare. These other things work themselves out in the hearts of true believers. Of course they do. But our, our prime directive is to preach the gospel, the gospel of repentance. We can't do this. We can't change the hearts of people. We can't do it. Modern denominationalism begins to invest all kinds of man hours and budget money and all kinds of philosophies and stuff, thinking that in their power, they can empower people who otherwise in their minds have been displaced in society. Let me tell you, we don't work in our own power. We work in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are confined to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples, namely to teach the word of God to people. Some will accept it, some won't, many won't. It's not our job to do anything other than to declare the truth. It is the Holy Spirit of God coming directly from the mandate of the Father who works in the hearts of people. I don't know how or why he does it the way that he does it. But I'm constantly reminded that my job is to declare the gospel and to teach the Bible to those who will hear. Well, they had a simple job here. Inhabit the land. Keep going. You're not that far away. Just keep going. But wouldn't you know it, we had to establish a committee to study this thing. A committee to question the Word of God. It didn't work out well for them, I can tell you. The vote was 10 to 2. The majority ruled, and they don't go. And they'll all die in the desert having never seen the land of promise. How tragic. How terrible. We're unable to go up against the people for they're stronger than we. That's the whole point, you idiots. That's the whole point. How did you come out of Egypt? On your own power? 
How did you defeat Amalek along the way? It was by the raised hands of Moses, by the will of God. You didn't do it with your spears and swords. It was God who was fighting this battle for you. You're right. You're unable. I'm unable. We're not able to do that which God has called us to do. We need God. It's His work. It's His problem. They spread an evil report about the land which they had scouted, telling the children of Israel, the land we passed through to explore is a land that consumes its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are men of stature. There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, descended from the giants. In our eyes, we seemed like grasshoppers. And so we were in their eyes. Now they made all that up. They just made that up. Not a single one of those guys walked up to one of those giants and said, hey, fella, what do you think of me? Do you think I'm a grasshopper? They, they, they made that up. Nobody interviewed a giant. So an evil report came forward. And all they could see was something that they couldn't do on their own. Therefore, let's not do it. What's the alternative? Well, we're going to find out. And we'll find out looking at it next time in the next chapter. But for now, let's be dismissed with prayer. Oh God in heaven, Lord, help us to live our lives in faith and in belief. Help us to know that we are unable, but that you are more than able. And teach us, O oh God, to follow you faithfully in this life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.